Blog Talk Radio. Writers Show is now in the air, spotlighted on BadRedheadMedia.com as a top author podcast on the web today and called the total blast of a show for writers. My name is Robert Batista, and you may ask, why is the Funky Writers Show so terrific? Because I'm a writer, just like my guests, and know that words are the breath of life. Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the Funky Writer. One of the things that I've enjoyed doing on this page is walking you through the process of being an author. It's not just about the stories. It's about the blood, sweat, and tears. This is part of a blog by today's guest, author Daniel Haight. Welcome, Daniel, to the Funky Writers Show. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. And thank you very much. Yes, for yes. Me. How's everything going out there in Southern California? Oh, it's been wonderful. I'm broadcasting to you live from a parking lot because me and the family stopped over here to grab something to eat, and that it gives me a chance to stop and talk to you. Right, right. As you said uh, earlier, a nice diversion, because <laughs> I know it's crazy over where you are. So, Daniel, let's start the show by delving into those words from your blog titled, Authors Are Entrepreneurs. You then write, oh. oddly enough, most people don't see it that way. Talk about why it's important to get people, especially authors, to definitely see it that way. Well, I'll tell you, it's quite simple, that every author is, there's a uh, misconception amongst the public that authors simply just write, and then they come out of their hole in time for the brilliant, uh, the brilliant uh, book launch, they and, uh, sign the book deal, and then they go back to their hole and write some more. And I'll be, I'll be the first one to tell you, I wish it was that simple. But the uh, reality is, with the sheer amount of stories coming out this year, as the, uh, I should say every single year, as well as the disruptive nature of the publishing industry in 2016, that every author has to have that you know, 40% writing, 20% nuts and bolts of the actual business, and then another 40% of audience building. They really have to be experts in the field because there's way too many ways to get it wrong otherwise. Yeah, they keep mentioning platform, platform, platform. Uh, is oh, this basically what you agree on also? Well, I do, but I, I, I try, I, like yourself, I think uh, what I try to remember is ultimately it's not about the platform. It's about 
the fact that the the market for having something to say never goes out of style, regardless right. of what that what medium that is. People have been saying that novels are have been dying for fifty years, and now I'm doing research that says novels are making a big huge comeback after the advent of every e-reader on the planet. So ultimately, if you have something to say and that reaches out and touches people, you're going to be okay. You might have to, you know, pivot and change how you present your material, but ultimately you're going to find your audience, and your audience is going to find you. So, Daniel, you're a prolific author. Uh, you've written a lot. Uh, let's talk about your beginning mm-hmm. path and origination sure. into writing for the public. At what point in your life's journey did you decide to become a published author? It's interesting you mention that. I was at Disneyland this week. I think I told you that. And uh, one of my favorite rides at Disneyland is the Pirates of the Caribbean, which unfortunately was actually offline. We didn't get to go at it. But I remember going on that ride at 12 and remembering how immersive the atmosphere was and seeing everything just around you an inch deep. You were just wrapped in this blanket of a story about going and seeing pirates. And that had such an impact on me. I remember feeling every square inch of that ride and wanting to tell a story that got people and wrapped people up like that, like uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean did. And that ultimately was my formative moment. I started writing when I was 12, and I started filling notebook after notebook of just whatever came in my head. And then I put it away for quite some time. I didn't think I could make any money at it, so I wouldn't. I stopped trying. And then I had a second formative moment when my son was born that I had to come back to writing and tr- do the best I could to be successful at it. And so it's definitely not a path, a linear path to success. There's a lot of twists and turns, a lot of starts and stops, a lot of uh, some really amazing moments like this moment right here talking to you. And then there's a bunch of kind of boring, sad moments when things have been difficult and you don't experience the success you want to. So uh, did you take any formal writing courses like in college or in some kind of group? Were you in a writing group or did you just, uh, you know, just wait? Oh, God, I tried. No, no, I tried. I'll be, I'll be quite honest with you. I, I don't recommend writers groups. Uh, or okay. I should say if you do, you definitely want to vet them because you want people who are in the business of getting published on a regular basis, who understand the market, who understand the genre of work that you're doing and can support you. I've, the writers groups I've been in are ultimately a bunch of people who want to write to say that they're writing, but the right. actual business of getting published, they're not there definitely not there. And so I've invested the time to be with them, but ultimately I just got very disappointed. I wanted to be with writers who are actually writing and getting published and going through the nuts and bolts of the business. And so I, I look at it kind of like Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino became a filmmaker because he worked in the video store there in Los Angeles and he watched every single movie in the video store. That's ultimately how he went to film school. And so the same way, I've tried to read every single thing I can get my hands on and ultimately learn how to decompose the structure of the story, character development, plot advancement, all those different things so that I can make a story and so that I can do the same thing and so I can get all these different stories that are inside me out in a way that people will want to read them. Legend has it that you wrote and published many short stories. Um, can you talk about the legends some are of true. your early <laughs> they are true. I, I figured. <laughs> Can you talk about some of those early works and what those early short stories were about? 
Uh, but some of the short stories are uh, sci-fi. The uh, vast majority of them actually are online. You can go to flotillaonline.com, my webpage. Okay. Click on free stuff, and you can uh, get a copy of it for free. Um, I, you know, it's kind of like, uh, oh, trying to think of the guy's name on The Simpsons where he said he had he had a trumpet and he just had to get he had, oh no, I take it back, forget it, forget that. John Lee Hooker, the famous blues man. You remember him? Right. Yes. Okay. Here's a story called Boogie Chillin' where he talks about growing up as a kid in Mississippi. Poor, you know, poor black kid in Mississippi. And he says, one night I was laying down and I heard mama tell, or daddy tell mama, let that boy boogie because it's in him and it's got to come out. And I was like, mm-hmm, that's me. That is what I do, except I do it with books. And uh, that's ultimately what what the the as simple as I can make it. So, I had these different story ideas, and it was driving me berserk that I couldn't put them to pen to paper and get them out of me. And so I just you know picked up the pen one day and started writing, or I picked up the keyboard and I started writing. And uh, you know, it's like at least at that at that level, even if I'm not writing something that I could publish, I'm telling the story, and that made me feel better about myself. And so well, that's the great kind of thing about the shorties, uh, short stories, mm-hmm. is that you have such a little space to tell the story. So it has to be compact, and it has to hit them right away. And you have to have oh, the yeah. beginning, the middle, the end, all in a concise part. I wrote a short story that's only three pages, and it right. was one of the best things I've ever written in my life. And I've written novels and, and novellas and everything else. But this one short story is so powerful, it's been called one of my greatest works. So, um, uh, and there's I guess nothing you're more satisfying than getting that out. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I guess I you're say, always going nothing to be satisfied with that short story. Well, no. Yeah, no, no, so, no. I, uh, what I was going to say is it's so, there's nothing more satisfying than getting that story out. It's inside right. you and it's got to come out, and it makes you nuts. When you can't get that story out and tell it the way you want to, nothing makes you crazier. Um, I'll be comfortable writing. I think it's important to be familiar with the structure of the process, right? So I should say structure of the story. Whether you're writing a novel or a novella or a short or even a poem. Even now, Let's say, for example, you want to write uh, limericks. That's, that's your thing. Don't ask me why, but maybe it, it is. As long as you're familiar with the structure – and you can find different ways to be expressive without being sloppy. You know that I think is ultimately the, the test for every writer. It's going to be difficult for all of them. Uh, everyone's got to find their own way through it. But uh, you know, it's especially kind of like what I say about short stories is the difference between a fresh tomato and a sun-dried tomato. Sometimes you want a fresh tomato on them pizzas, but sometimes you want to put a sun-dried tomato in your pasta. True that. Uh, let's talk about the Pack Fish series and the first installment called Frontier. Sure. Talk about Absolutely. the germination and concept of how this story took shape in your mind and onto the page. Sure. So Flotilla is the first story, and it's about this kid who's growing up at the end of the world. He's uh, got some problems as a troubled uh, teenager. He's been sent to live with his dad, but his dad lives in the future on a floating colony, and they raise fish for a living. And that's actually a technology that we're starting to see become more and more prolific as the oceans become more and more overfished. And so it's really exciting to see that uh, take shape. Um, but at the same time, as he's going through the process of living in this strange community, uh, he's dealing with the fact that his father is less than perfect and that uh, also all the other people around him also have their own demons to fight. And at the same time, the world is coming to an end. And so he has to step up 
and be more of a man than his father was if he's planning to save himself and his little sister. So that's the structure of the story. Uh, the germination of it uh, quite simply was um, I love – I'm always in love with different new technologies, and so I'm constantly reading some things and going, what if that happened or what if that happened? Wouldn't that be interesting? So we're sitting there one day at work, sitting in a staff meeting and wishing I wasn't there, and uh, uh, I just started thinking about, well, what if you had this other business? What if you actually raised fish for a living? And what if you had to live on the ocean 24-7? What would life be like for you? And why would you go out there? Why would you actually be willing to go and engage in a business like that uh, than uh, on land? So all these different little questions, and I wanted to know the answers to those questions. And so I started writing scenes about this kid and about his life living on this community. And the more scenes that I wrote, the more scenes came. And I realized I actually had a novel here, so I needed to come put together a structure to make the whole story fit. And so that was the beginning of just the process back in 2008 and was drafting and editing and updating. And so I was finally able to get it to a point where it was ready for the publication back in 2011. And then I put a new edition out last year and I'll be putting a new edition of the sequel later this year. I am transfixed by your protagonist, 15-year-old Jim, who basically has been through the fire even as the story opens. How did he get to be such a well-laid character? And would you say that his journey caused him to be the ultimate survivor in the type of condition he's thrown into? I think so, because Jim is learning the the most important lesson that any survivor has to learn, which is it's up to you. You don't get to stop. You have to either decide you're either make the decision to survive or you're going to roll over and let it happen to you. And so ultimately, just by accident or osmosis, Jim has a lot of grit inside him to be resilient and uh, and uh, practical and also, uh, say, you know, inventive and uh, and uh, brave in order to get through what he's going through. You know, so he's. I would say Colin, the ultimate survivor, actually, it's a good way to put it. I I have a lot of respect for him because the thing about heroes, modern day heroes, real heroes, is that they don't they don't just wake up one day with the cape on and decide they're going to go fight crime or save the world. Real heroes are the people who, despite the challenges, despite the dangers, decide to do the right thing, even though even when everything is going wrong. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I appreciate you bringing that out. Daniel, you have graciously agreed to read from one of your works for us. Can you set oh. up the piece before you read it? Sure, of course. You fire that up. Here, let's talk a little bit while I'm putting this together. So what this is is just a brief piece from the beginning of Flotilla. I thought that might okay. be the nice thing to, for everyone to experience. And this is the spot where Jim is just realizing he's got um, – he's just escaped a horrible nightmare. And he's got to go ahead and survive the night driving a boat in the ocean. He's never done any of that. So he's gone from one horror to the next. And he still doesn't even know why any of it's happening. He's just going through it and experiencing it. So that's one thing about survival fiction you find that they're always talking a lot about the backstory of, you know, why, why is everything really happening to everybody? And there's a lot of politics involved, and there's a lot of personal opinion involved. But for a 15-year-old kid who doesn't watch the news, he's not going to have any idea why any of this is happening to him. So I thought, let me go ahead and just read the prologue to Flotilla. And if hopefully this uh, sucks you in, and I hope it 
I, I hope it uh, motivates you to give the series a try. Cool. You all set? Yep. Great. By the way, I'm hoping I'm coming through okay on this uh, cell phone piece. Let me know if I need to speak up. Uh, you're good, actually. Actually. Okay, great. Just checking. So here we go. Prologue. Is this thing on? I don't know how much longer I have to live. My sister and I are on the run. We left our community behind and escaped to sea. This speech-to-text thing gives me something to talk to, and I don't feel like dictating a will. If you find this, can you do me a favor? Contact Rick Westfield or Teresa Bowman and tell them where we are. They haven't responded to our calls and texts. Teresa is my mom, and she lives in West Covina. If there's any central evacuation place for Los Angeles, you should be able to find her there. Rick Westfield is my dad. They took him from us. My name is Jim, by the way. Right now, it's just me and my sister, Madison, on board this old yacht named the Horner Sea. It's about 22.30 right now, 10.30 to everyone besides us. The weather's pretty bad, but I'm not complaining. If it wasn't for this storm, Madison and I would have been in a grease spot on a deck somewhere. I'm hoping this boat can handle it, but we're getting water under the door to the bridge, and the wind is blowing us around on the water like a cheap kite. I can't hold my course to more than 20 or 30 degrees. That might be the wind or the fact that this old tub hasn't moved in the last 10 years. I'm trying to watch her GPS, the black knight outside our windshield, and Madison all at once. She's asleep at the mess table next to me, and I'm afraid she'll slide off the chair and crack her forehead on something. I don't believe I'm doing this. For all the time I've spent on her swabbing the decks of the Horner Sea, I've never actually sailed her. I have almost zero experience on how things work when a boat is under power, and now I'm sailing in a storm. Why am I pulling this dumb stunt? It's pretty simple. The world has come to an end. The first news report said it was a virus, and that was bad enough. Then more news started coming in. Coordinated attacks in major cities, radiation from dirty bombs, bioweapons, quarantine zones, and mass casualty events. Our beat-up old flat screen gave us a front-row seat to the meltdown of the United States. Riding in the Bay Area, Phoenix, and St. Louis, a mysterious superbug was killing people in Baltimore and here in Los Angeles. Dirty bombs were set off in Reno, Plano, and Vicksburg. Everybody had on the Pacific Fisheries Colony D had family on shore. Naturally, we were, we were riveted to the feed, hoping to hear something, hoping that they were okay. Hope started to dwindle when we caught reports of vigilantes. Bands of citizens outside the infected zones were shooting and killing people on site because they might have been sick. Nobody bothered with quarantines. They just opened fire. Out on the water, we aren't about to die of the plague or nuclear contamination, but we had our own issues. The place where we lived until very recently is, well, unconventional. We call it the colony. It's an ocean-based community filled with odd people, and some of them are more dangerous than others. Sorry, I should say were, not are. I have to get used to talking about the colony in the past tense now. Half an hour ago, the Navy sank it to the bottom to the ocean. Before all that happened, I found out my dad was in the middle of something, something bad. I don't know the whole story, but what I do know is that they took him away. Every man in the colony, including Dad, got sent ashore to help with the rescue effort. I mean, I know I'm only 15, but I was, that was a load of crap. It was pure suicide. Nobody gave him a choice. Dad told us, if you don't hear from me in a day, send a message to your mom. If you don't hear from her, her in four, take the boat along with anyone else you can and go north. Find a place called Puget Sound and look for a small island to hang out. You can stay, stay there for a while. I'll find you and we will be together again. That was four days ago. Now he's gone. 
and some pirates tried to kill us. It's a long story. So I'll riveting, stop there. riveting, you, riveting, excellent. Um, Daniel, you mentioned survival fiction. Now, sure. did you get any feedback uh, from the so-called preppers and survivalists uh, who may have read the story or did read the story? Uh, what type of feedback did you get from those uh, that section of the people? It's been relatively positive. Uh, ultimately, the nice thing about it is they find the fact that we're talking about ocean-based survival to be completely new. The vast majority of the time, people are talking about their go bags and prepping and living somewhere in a in a call in a I should say a, a armed community somewhere uh, in the uh, in the uh, land you know somewhere in in the Midwest. But reality is is that the ocean is a big place and there's a lot of places to hide. So they found that to be quite refreshing. Um, other ones uh, also enjoyed kind of the technical accuracy of it. They felt that uh, I really did right. justice looking at a practical way to survive, uh, you know, a situation, and that kind of informs uh, the way I, the way I write the story. I don't like the type of prepper fiction where everybody is just prepared for every single possible right. eventuality, and you can kind of get that because I don't think that's an honest and authentic story. So right. I got uh, some high praise from them for that. Let's talk about Daniel Hate the person. Where did sure. you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Um, well, somewhat similar to Jim, although I made my own mistakes. I would say Jim had Jim had his problems. I had mine. Uh, right. What you notice is that when you've got a parents who are kind of checked out and they're not necessarily where they should be uh, with their children. There's a lot of potential for kids to go wrong, and so that's why it's really important to be not just uh, talk about being a parent, being what kids need, but also be what kids need. Um, So, you know, for example, this uh, Disneyland trip, I was able to take the family, but then I was also made sure to take uh, some friends along with us that uh, they'd never been to Disneyland, they couldn't afford to go, and I said, listen, things work out, Uh, I'm going to put some dollars together, and let's all go together, because their children have never been able to do that. You know, did you grow up like in that. the Bay Area? I, I did. I absolutely did. I was born in uh, the East Bay, and I grew up there, and we still live there. So beautiful. But you know, it's 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 interesting because everyone goes, "Oh, you lived in California, so lots of surfing, right?" I said, "No, no, 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 no." I said, "You have to, you have to understand the poor blue collar place I grew up in." I said, <laughs> "If you want this, if you want to understand it," I said, "It's kind of a cross between the show Malcolm in the Middle and the Roseanne Show, right?" A lot of poor, angry people. They're not making good choices with their kids, and it's funny to watch it on a television show. But when you're living the home, when you're playing the home game, it's a lot less fun. That is um, some cross, uh, Daniel. Yeah. What were some of the books and authors that inspired you Ooh. in your youth? Oh, I'll tell you right now. Um, say, as far as science fiction goes, Asimov and Heinlein, um, right? Alan Steele, of course, David Brin, people like that. This is you know, an honor to be able to meet them and, and kind of work along with them now as an author as opposed to just another, another reader. Um, but also at the same time, I read books like from Louis L'Amour. I uh, love old westerns. Elmore Leonard is another favorite of mine, Harper Lee. So I really wanted to kind of capture that uh, effort, I should say, that drive toward nobility that you read in a lot of uh, Louis L'Amour novels where, you know, there are these – blue-collar, tough characters, but at the same time, they really were trying to do the right thing, and uh, ultimately, they're able to win out. You don't necessarily see that in uh, modern-day fiction. There's usually kind of just a varying degrees of suck 
everything is falling apart, so you fall apart too. But but right. how do you become how do you become or try to be a good person when everything else is going wrong? I think that's a that's an interesting question to answer. And I'd like to see it the is. answer of it. And I'm trying to explore that with, with the back. Daniel, we have so many new authors who listen to this show and they want mm-hmm. to know how to get published. What is the best way? Get an agent, self-published, independent? Uh, what? Um, how was your publishing journey in the beginning? Oh, God, it's so convoluted. I mean, I mean every publisher, even even famous and established publisher or authors are still, still trying to figure this thing out. It is a regular topic of discussion. Um, I would say right now, if you are interested in understanding more about getting published, you can follow some of the posts I write about the process. I write you know, a bunch of blog posts tagged professional storytelling, and you can learn some of the practical nuts and bolts there. But I'm also right. you know, active on uh, Reddit, R-A-D-D-I-T.com. Uh, right. There's a number of communities devoted to writing that uh, are really powerful and uh, very helpful, and it's just a plain – the plain nuts and bolts of the craft and getting published and going through that process. There's a lot of reading that needs to be done, a lot of studying that needs to be done. There's a lot of ways to get it wrong. I'm happy to say that finally after like two or three years of uh, being on Twitter, that's how you and I met, that uh, was able to – I had uh, – was it just reached out to a, a uh, Barnes & Noble in Connecticut. And they were like, oh, yeah, sure, we'd love to have you on the shelf there. And I was just like, you know, for years and years trying to get Barnes & Noble to even consider my t- title – and banging wow. away at them, all of, I should say, just having conversations with people on Twitter like you and I did. Right. Um, it's just, just boom, all of a sudden the magic happens. And so, you know, there are, there's some, some effort that just goes into it. There's a lot of, as I said in the uh, Authors or Entrepreneurs post, there's a lot of just the plain, flat grind of trying to make it and figuring out right. how to talk to people about your work and how to build an audience and how to build a story at the same time and also how not to give up to your, on yourself while you're pursuing your dream. There's a lot of exactly. there's a lot to be learned there. There's a lot to be learned there. And it's a it is a process. I have an interesting question. Uh I know you're on vacation and you're a family man and 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 all that. So, how do you find time to write? Some authors can pull out a pen or laptop and write anywhere, anytime, but others need a special time and place to be creative. Which one are you? Ooh. I think I try to be – here's the thing. Being a, being a family man, I got a day job, and so I have to pivot and find the right time and the right place and the right circumstances. And some of it is I will have to get up at 4.30 in the morning while everyone is still asleep, make a pot of coffee, right. and, and just start banging away before everyone gets up. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes while I'm commuting, if I take the train into the city, I can pull out the laptop and just start writing. I'm working on a short right now that uh, I started while I was sitting on the train. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Basically, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, right, you should, right. You, if, if having a specific time and a specific circumstance helps you be productive, you know, more power to you. But don't let the fact that you don't have perfect circumstances prevent you from doing what you can. Um, right. A great quote. I forget who originally said it. I saw it written on a wall. It was uh, written by Cindy Crawford. She wrote it on a wall at some place in Sacramento. She says, always remember that things don't have to be perfect to be perfect. And I said, mm-hmm, that's the one. And that's so the one. I really want it, you know, even though my circumstances are really perfect and conducive to writing, 
I, I force myself to do it because it's really – and also, the more you force, the less it, less it becomes a hassle. It's kind right. of like going to the gym. If you go to the gym every single day for a week, on that seventh, on that eighth day, the very next week, it's going to be pretty hard to say no. But if you're not doing it, if you're just saying, oh, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. Oh, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. By the time you get back to it, it just becomes easier and easier for you to slack off and not get there. So the creativity also, like a muscle, it, uh, the more you work. It- yeah, you know, it's amazing uh, with, with authors who have families. I've talked to authors who, as you said, as you get up at 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning and write before everyone wakes up. And then there's other authors that, yeah, there's other authors that they can write with babies on their laps and feeding their babies, and they're still able to write at that time. So, you know, different strokes for different folks, as you said. You there? You there? Okay, I'm thinking possibly the call has dropped. Let's see if he uh, calls back. Hey, you're back. I am back. I'm sorry about that. What was the last thing you heard me say? (laughs) Are you there? And then boom. Uh, So, you know, we're just about ready to wrap up. So, um, No, no, I was enjoying my time with you. Hi, me too, me too, but, you know, a half hour is a half hour. So let me ask you this question. Um, Let's talk social media, Daniel. I know, as you said, we're on Twitter and Goodreads and such. Of all the social media platforms, which one do you feel is the most beneficial for your brand and which, in your estimation, is the best for authors? Or does each platform offer its own special compensations? <laughs> Looks like I lost him again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the show has been pretty good so far. And um, actually, we're at the 30-minute uh, part, actually the 29-minute part. So uh, if he does not call back, we'll be okay. Um, that's it about cell phones. You know, uh, Blog Talk Radio loves for people to use landline phones because there's always the threat of cell phone calls dropping. But, you know, that's quite all right. Um, so we will wrap up the show. And the show was with Daniel Haight. And, uh, yeah, yeah, his um, series is called um, Flotilla. And his website is flotillaonline.com. This has been Robert Batista, The Funky Writer Show.